0: a partner here and tonight I'll be reading from Genesis 3 1 through 15 now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God actually say to you you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent, serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die but the serpent said to the woman this is the word
1: of the Lord. Well, one of the um, uh, guys that probably is considered like the preeminent or one of the preeminent 21st century authors on culture uh, is a guy named Shea Serrano. Shea has written like what many people consider the definitive books on basketball, uh, on movies, um, even rap. And uh, I heard a story one time, Shay tell this story, uh, and uh, it it just goes so well with what we're talking about tonight. But the story goes like this. Shay, when he was in college, uh, his car broke down and he got out of the car and looked at the engine and all of that and he just could not figure out what was going on and he had no options really other than to call a a tow truck to come and get the car and and take it back to his place. Um, He knew the person that he needed to call to look at this who could figure it out was his dad. The only problem was his dad lived 215 miles away. But because he was desperate, he didn't have money to like pay for someone to fix it, he called up his dad and he said, dad, um, I need you, if you would be willing, to come and take a look at the car. It was on a Sunday and he said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll have to do it tomorrow after I get off work. His dad was a, like a public uh, transportation guy. He drove a bus in the city and uh, did that for 10 hours a day. He said, after I'm done with that, I'll come and uh, check out your car. So he he got up the next morning. His dad worked a full day, then got on the road to go see his son Shay. 215 miles—that's about three hours—and uh, he gets to uh, Shay's uh, apartment and uh, hugs him and says hello. And he says, "Hey, let's take a look at your car." They go out to the car, lift the hood, looks around, goes into the—you the, the, know—the the driver's area and, and looks around, turn, tries to turn on the car. And uh, after just about a minute of 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 this, he gets out of the car and he walks up to his son Shay, and his son Shay is completely confused. He's like, Dad, like, did you forget your tools? Like, are you confused about what's going on with the car? And his dad lovingly looked at his son, Shay, and said, Son, your car is out of gas. Now, in that moment, Shea describes an overwhelming sense of shame, right? Here's his dad who had just worked a full day of, uh, he was driving for 10 hours already, got on the road for three hours to get to him, just to find out that all it really was was he was out of gas in his car, but um, they decided to move from that moment and go have dinner, and Shay said at the dinner, his dad didn't say a word about the car. He didn't say a word about the gas. And Shay is um, about my age now, okay? And and he said uh, his dad has never brought it up in conversation since then. Shame is a powerful emotion. Even with something as simple as realizing that you're out of gas after you've had your dad drive for 215 miles to tell you that. Shay felt it deeply. But an even more powerful emotion is when someone covers your shame, which is what Shay's dad did. Actually, Shay's dad went home that same day. So, like, he drove 430 miles, six hours round trip. Why? Because he loved his son. And even though his son made a stupid mistake, he covered the shame that Shay felt with mercy. We are in a uh, new series that begins tonight, an Advent series um, called The Coming Messiah. And we are invited into a time that really echoes the period that the early Christians were anticipating the first arrival of Jesus. In the Old Testament, there's many, many places where we see Jesus uh, prophesied about, or promised, or predicted, and that's what we're going to be looking at in this series: some Old Testament passages about what those early Christians would have been looking forward to. Uh, this is also a time where we have an opportunity to sort of move into that same kind of of waiting that those first Christians would have felt. This is a a time for us to enter into a season uh, of Advent as well, and as we do this we do it in a very different way than those Christians would have done it uh, in the past, right? Well, we don't, we don't look forward to the first coming of Jesus. We are actually on the other side of the first coming of Jesus. In some ways what you could say is this is a second Advent series and here's what I mean by that. You and I are in this waiting period before the second coming of Jesus. And so as we sing songs like O Come O Come Manuel. We're singing songs in light of that. It is echoing those early Christians, the way that they would have been waiting on this predicted and prophesied and promised Messiah. But for you and I, on this side of the cross, we are waiting really in a second advent. So over the next few weeks, we're inviting you in to this period of waiting. And then, obviously, as we move into the the week of Christmas, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, that is where the the waiting for us is resolved. We see the the first coming of Jesus, and then we really continue to just be a a waiting people, a people who are waiting on the second coming of Jesus. So as we look at this passage in Genesis tonight, I want to invite you to see two things. First is this. Our response to sin is is to hide. Our response to sin is to hide. But second, God's response to sin is to cover it. God's response to sin is to cover sin. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Genesis chapter 3, beginning there in verse 1. You just heard it read, Christina, thank you for that. That was a little longer passage tonight, but thank you for your Um, for your patience and listening to that. It's it's an important passage because we are finding ourselves located in the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible is the book of Genesis if you're new to the Bible. And the book of Genesis in a lot of ways sets the stage for the rest of the Bible and really it sets the stage for, for all of life for us. There's so much that happens in these early stages in the book of Genesis that that sets a framework or a grid for us to understand ourselves, how the world works and ultimately who God is. And so as we look here tonight beginning in this, uh, this passage, we are seeing the very beginning of the story of the Bible and the story of us. We see the Trinity, in the very first chapter, God the Father, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit creating a world and he calls it good. But not only that, he, he creates the very first humans in perfect relationship with him. And he, he calls this not just good, but very good. And then we see God resting on the seventh day. And he rests to model for us uh, the importance of rest and trusting in him. But then we see in Genesis 3 a, a strange turn of events the, ser- the serpent, Satan, comes to our first parents, Adam and Eve, our first spiritual parents. And he comes to them to launch an offensive. And you, ser- you saw this as Christina was reading it. In just a few short verses, we go from this perfect relationship between man and God to a broken relationship between man and God. And the introduction of of sin into the world. Some call it the fall of humanity. It it wasn't like they just tripped into a hole. This was a volitional and it, it, it came from their free will. They decided to choose themselves over God and it would mar mankind forever. You and I still are wrestling with the effects of this original sin. Now, there are three things that I want you to see here real quickly in these verses, what I would call three components of sin. These are some things that were introduced into our humanity, and that's, this is what we still wrestle with today. First, what did Satan start with? He started with a question that said this, did God really say what you think he said? What is that? The the enemy, Satan, is attacking here the character of God by essentially saying, you know, really, let's think about this, Adam and Eve. God doesn't have your best interests at heart. He doesn't really love you. Like, if he really loved you, he wouldn't make this rule for you. He would give you complete freedom to do whatever you want. And because he's not loving you in this way, you can't really trust him, can you? You know, Adam and Eve, honestly, you would make a better God of your life than God the Father. In other words, he was coming to them to say, God's words are not trustworthy. Thus, God isn't trustworthy. Now, next, the serpent basically says, if you do what God said you shouldn't do, surely you're not going to die. In other words, there will be no judgment, Eve. There will be no judgment, Adam. There will be no consequence for sin if you do what God said not to do. In other words, there will be no judgment. But that's not true, right? So you and I know that's not true. When we're tempted to sin, when we give in to sin, you and I have experienced the consequences of sin. Sin has consequences. But when we believe what the serpent got Adam and Eve to believe, we are re- rehearsing the same kind of thinking. God, you're, you, you don't love me. You're, you're not trustworthy. I know better than you. I don't need to worry about consequences. And underneath all of that is really the first component of sin, and it's unbelief. Unbelief in the love of God, unbelief in the wisdom of God, unbelief that our sin has consequences, natural consequences, eternal consequences. Friends, this is where all of our sin begins, begins in unbelief. And right after unbelief really comes in the second component of sin. In Romans 1, Paul says this about the scene that we see here in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are giving glory, giving importance, weightiness to a created thing over the creator. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, the word glory means weight. And that's what happens when you and I elevate anything to a level of importance or weight that is equal to or greater than God? We are committing this second component of sin. It's something we talk about a lot here at Mercy View. It's the sin of idolatry. And in this story, the idol actually has a few pieces. First, I want you to notice the lust of the flesh. Eve saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was good for food. Second, the lust of the eyes. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And then third, the lust for power. You will be like God. Like That's what we'll say. I'll be better at making the rules than you, God. I'm going to sit on the throne of my own heart, not let you. But all of this leads to the second component of sin that we see here in Genesis 3, the the sin of idolatry. Now, when you bring unbelief and idolatry together, it culminates in the third component of sin that we see here. This is the response that Adam and Eve had, and it's the sin of rebellion, right? First, Adam and Eve did not believe. Second, they valued something other than God. But then look there in verse six it says she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate he uh, adam and and she eve rebelled turned away from what god asked them to do for in every sin every disobedience every time we we give in to sinful actions that's the pattern unbelief idolatry, and then rebellion. See, rebellion is unbelief and, and, and idolatry in and action. Now, we don't think of our sinfulness necessarily as rebellion, but that is what it is, is at its very root. When we don't believe in a good God and we begin to replace him with a God substitute, we are actually rising up and revolting against the truth. Rebellion is not too strong of a word. We are believing in a lie, and that's the third component of, of sin that we see here, rebellion. Now, what did Adam and Eve do as they became aware of, of what was going on? They, they were beginning to realize, we have done something really bad here, right? Look with me at, at verse 8. Let me read that again for us. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and here's, this is key, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about how the Lord pursued them. But how did Adam and Eve respond to this newfound understanding of their sin and brokenness? Did they confess their sin? Did they come out into the light and say, God, we messed up. We didn't follow what you wanted us to do. No. No says that they hid why did Adam and Eve hide well in what sense we we see the answer here they they began to realize that they were naked that that isn't I don't think meant to just necessarily be a, a a physical nakedness the writer is talking about here I believe in addition to that awareness, they had been laid bare by their sin, and they were now aware of of both their physical and spiritual nakedness. Here's the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening: your and I's response to sin is to hide. Now, friends we do this in a few different ways. One um, of the ways we do it is, is the way that Adam and Eve did it. We, we're not honest about our sin, we rationalize it by saying, but you know, on the whole, I'm, I'm good, I'm a good person. Uh, compared to other people, I'm a good person. And it's the way to get the spotlight off of ourselves. Did you, did you see that in the story with Adam and Eve? We try to push away the conviction of sin that we're feeling to justify ourselves. Or maybe we put our head under the pillow and we refuse to think about it. That's another way of hiding, by refusing to think about the consequences of sin, or refusing to believe that there actually are things that are not good that come out of our sinful uh, actions. In some ways, this is the part of justification of sin for, for you and I. We think, this won't hurt me. I can manage this no harm no foul denying the reality is all along sin damages us there's another way verse 12 look what it says the man said the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate and then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you have done and he and she blames the serpent right what's happening there they're standing with fingers pointed at other people or other things this is the third way that you and I hide from our sin. We blame shift. We say, I was in an impossible circumstance, Brad. You don't understand how hard this was. I had to do it. I had to give in to this. Or hey, look, that other person, they did me wrong first, and I, I had to respond. Or I, I just run—I ran with the wrong crowd. You know, Brad, I'm sorry. It was just, it was the wrong crowd, and I couldn't help it. Or, hey, I, look, I deserve this sinful thing. I'm under a lot of stress. I'm under a lot of anxiety and I need a release. I need an escape. Now, there is a fourth way that we hide and I see it here in this story. And I wanna hang here for just a little bit because I think this is one that is sneaky for us in our lives. They notice that they're naked And what do they immediately do? They try to cover themselves up, right? They cover themselves up with, the Bible says, fig leaves. And I'm not trying to be crude here, but I just wanna ask this question. How big are fig leaves? Fig leaves are not big. Okay, so they took something to, to try to hide Behind something, but, but but let's think about it. it. It didn't hide very much. It was an attempt to do something that you and I do with sin. And, and I, I was um, reminded of a of a study that Mercy View has done through its history. Uh, it's called Gospel Centered Life. It's written by some friends of mine, and and in that book the authors say that one of the ways that you and I try to cope with our sin, one of the ways that you and I try to put fig leaves on is we pretend. Another thing that we do is we perform, but I wanna wanna hang on this idea of of pretending and and I think this is gonna make sense to you. When we become aware of our sin, um, sometimes instead of confessing that sin to God, and to other people, Um, we try to conceal as much of it as we can, right? Especially the bad stuff. Um, And by the way, pretending is different from faking it. I think faking it is about impressing other people. But pretending is more about shame. We say, I don't think people will accept me. I don't think people will love me if they know the real me. That's what our first parents are doing in this story. They're camouflaging, attempting to camouflage themselves because of their shame. So what do you do when you feel that? What do you do when you feel naked? Or maybe we could ask it this way. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility when you feel exposed? Your answer to that question will often reveals something besides Jesus in which you find rightness, or as the Bible calls it, righteousness. And just for the sake of just doing some heart level stuff tonight, I want to walk through some, some options and just ask you to consider if this is or if some of these are the ways that you do this. And, and as a disclaimer, I'm going to reveal mine when we're done with the list, okay? So, so I'm, I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not willing to do. First, job righteousness. This is what a person who's finding their personal credibility in their job, they're saying this, I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Next, family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Peer righteousness. I need my peers to think that I have it all together so I never show weakness or a lack of confidence. Theological righteousness. I've got good theology and God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness, I'm better read, I'm more articulate, I'm more culturally savvy than other people, which obviously makes me superior. Uh, Schedule righteousness, I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness, in a world that's busy, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Next, mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way that everyone should. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. Or guys, I guess, too, right? Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Uh, license righteousness, I am free in Christ. So if that means I go over the lines of holiness sometimes, so be it. God will forgive me anyway, so what's the big deal? Financial righteousness, I manage money so wisely and I stay out of debt, I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Political righteousness, If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. And you'll join me in tearing down my opponents. And you'll make politics your religion like it is mine. And lastly, tolerance righteousness. I am open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. The list hurts, right? It hurts for me that there's four in that list for me that um, I have to be really honest with you are deeply convicting. And they are these theological righteousness, intellectual righteousness, flexibility righteousness, and tolerance righteousness. What would you say are the ways that you, from that list we just look at, try to cover yourself? By the way, the list's not exhaustive. If none of them touched you, it doesn't mean you don't have that. It just means you need to ask the Lord to help you um, discern what that could be. The picture of the human race is where we are all trying to push down the shame of sin by signaling our virtue to other people. We're putting on fig leaves. This is one of the primary effects of sin you and I are hiders. That's our response to sin a lot. Our response to sin many times is to hide. Now if you jump down to verse 23, you'll see the very, very sad result of sin. Again, we said that Adam and Eve are our spiritual parents. So that means whatever happens to them spiritually moves down throughout all of humanity and if they have committed this, this great sin, we inherit that same sin. The Bible teaches this when you and I are born. But down in verse 23 it says this, "Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken." Talking about Adam. He drove out the man and Eve, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, look at this, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Christina didn't read this part earlier, but this is the, um, we're getting to the end here of the the Garden of Eden story. And essentially, God kicks them out, and he puts in the entrance of this garden an angel with a flaming sword, as if to say, you can't come back in here. You have broken relationship with me. The most devastating consequence of all here is is that they have lost what they had the very presence of God this beautiful like intimate communing time and 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 enjoyment of God in other words too like like he was saying if you try to get back in here this sword will prevent that you, if you want to see the garden again it'll be you'll have to die first it's the picture of the flaming sword that was the greatest of all tragedies our first parents lost their relationship with their father now if we ended the story here be a very short Bible and what hopelessness right what meaninglessness like what pain but thankfully this is not the end of the story the turning point for hope Happens right here in Genesis 3 as well. It's a scene so shocking that in the New Testament, Peter writes that even the angels are amazed and trying to look into it to to understand it. So I want you to notice what happened. God doesn't wait for Adam and Eve to come to him. He begins to pursue them. He comes looking for him. He even asks a very gracious question, where are you? We think God doesn't know where Adam and Eve are. He he, he knows where they are, but it's a gracious question. And he comes to to them, and um, then in verse 15, he says this. And this really comes to the Advent theme that we're looking at tonight. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise His heel. Very poetic language. let Let me tell you what's happening here, friends. Don't miss this. This is the first gospel of the Bible. This is the first promise of Christ. It happens in Genesis 3. See, the woman's offspring that the writer is talking about here, that God is talking about here, Jesus and God is pointing to a cosmic battle that is one day going to take place where the serpent will bite Jesus's heel but Jesus will crush the, the enemy's head every story in the Bible is going to flow from that promise it's a promise that there is coming a Messiah who will once and for all rid us of our shame and replace it with his grace and his mercy. Here's the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. God responds to sin by covering it. Now the place that I want to point you to though is a place in the New Testament where we see this connection. Romans chapter 5. You might remember this when we were looking at Romans 5 in our series we've been in the last couple of years in the book of Romans. Romans. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to this. Here's what it says, uh, beginning in verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. Here we see the three stages of sin. Sin comes into the world through one man, and because of that, death comes into the world as a penalty for that sin, and then death spreads to all men because all have sinned. Again, Adam and Eve were our first representatives. They were our first parents. And their sin, because of their decision, was transferred to us. And because of that great offense against a holy God, this sin requires death. And this death spread as a penalty to all people. But then listen to what it says in, in verse 14 in Romans 5. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses... Even over those whose who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. See, Adam was a type, a pattern, a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. And who was Adam a foreshadowing of? Here's verse 15 of Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man who, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There it is. See, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Adam's act, Eve's act, was inherently selfish and it resulted in death. But Jesus' act was inherently selfless. And in it, he offers us the free gift of grace that comes from God. Don't miss what what, what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that Jesus, as the coming Messiah, will be the true and better Adam. And then listen to this, beginning in verse 17 of Romans 5. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, the result of Adam's sin was condemnation for everybody. But the result of Jesus's act of righteousness was justification and life. Like Jesus did not simply absorb the penalty of our disobedience. He was, so to speak, he was elected as our new representative in the place of Adam he obeyed for us where Adam failed. In Adam, we disobeyed, but in Jesus, we now have obeyed through Jesus. The, the point of this section of Romans is, that, is this. What Jesus has done for all who are in him is far greater than what Adam did for all those who were in him. Yes, Adam was the father of all humanity, but now Jesus is the father of a new kind of humanity. A humanity that is born again. Jesus, Messiah now, is the true and better Adam. Jesus did what Adam and Eve should have done. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry, retreat to the wilderness to be with God, to prepare for his future ministry. And like Adam, Jesus is tempted there by Satan, but unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus receives these temptations and he resists every time. And how does he resist? By doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. By remembering and focusing on and believing in what God had said. Like Jesus responds with scripture to the, to the enemy in the wilderness. Jesus responds to every temptation from Satan only with the word of God. That showed his trust in the word. And in Genesis, after tempting Adam and Eve, the, the serpent slithers away. But when Jesus withstands his temptation, not only in the wilderness, but on the cross, the serpent bruised, his his heel is bruised. I'm sorry, his head is crushed, excuse me. Remember Genesis three? This bruising was not a, a nip on his heel, but a word picture of his death on a cross. Yet in that moment on the cross, when it appears that the serpent had won, God was actually crushing his head. See, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they ate from a tree, and they died. But Jesus obeyed God and climbed up on a tree willingly to die to bring you life. He climbed up on that tree to take the curse so that you could be released from it. He took the flaming sword of justice that guarded the entrance to the presence of God into him so that we could move back into the presence of God. Now, we didn't read this earlier, but the scene of of Genesis 3 ends in, in verse 21 with God taking an animal and killing it and using the skin to cover their nakedness. This particular act on God's part here is a foreshadowing of what we're talking about here, the death of Jesus, where his death now clothes us in God's righteousness. What a redemptive picture this is, right? To to think about this, our complete inadequacy to forgive ourselves, God reveals a plan through a coming Messiah to give us life through his death. And his sacrifice now can cover our sin. You and I, our response to that is to respond in repentance and faith. In a a world filled with terrible news, friends, tonight you can know that you know that your shame has been engulfed by the grace of God. So this Advent, as we look to the second coming of Christ, in this second Advent that we are in, um, repentance means coming out from hiding and stop blame shifting. It, it, It isn't the spouse or the friend that God gave you or the circumstances that you're in, you weren't just hanging out with the wrong crowd. It's repenting of your sin that you're responsible for, but faith is believing that Jesus has already covered your sin through the cross. So friends, this Advent season, let's commit to take off the false clothes of hiding, of self-justification, of excuses, And receive the beauty of the good news of the gospel that the angels long to look into the good news of the gospel the promise of God through Jesus Messiah is that if you confess your sin Jesus will cover it with his grace he wants to walk with us in the cool of the day his mercy has made a way for us to live in the light no more shame no more fear but freedom and and peace, so may this Advent season, our song, be what we sang earlier, O come, O come, Emmanuel. In that song, there's a couple of lines that I think are so important for us. It, it, it's, a, it's a prayer, we, we, we're asking Jesus Messiah to drive away the dark or the shades of night. That's what we get when we confess, he drives that stuff away. And then it says, come and cheer our spirits. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that you can pray, you can sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and Emmanuel comes and he covers your sin with his grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.